This morning's scripture reading is from the book of Malachi, chapter 2, verses 13 to 16. And this, the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favour from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, although she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring? So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of your let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and do not be faithless. This is God's word. When Christians are familiar with the Bible, think of Malachi, they often think of tithing. But not me. I think first of these verses. Whenever I do uh, premarital counseling, or marital counseling for that matter, the very first scripture, the very first session I start with is Malachi 2, verses 13 through 16. We're continuing our series through the book of Malachi this morning. Our questions, God's answers. Today's question, and I'm sort of summarizing it from verse 13 with what Malachi is saying, why would you reject my sacrifice? That's this morning's question. Why would you reject my sacrifice? Why would you not accept my offering of worship? It's kind of the idea. Here, Malachi means something very specific about an offering or sacrifice. A sinner gives an animal without blemish to a priest, and the priest offers it so that God could justly forgive that offender, that sinner, and reconcile that sinner to himself. We learned, though, a few weeks ago about priests, Old Testament priests, then. But hopefully you recall that we are modern priests now. If you trust your life to Christ, you are a modern-day priest. And we are still called to offer sacrifices. Specifically, in the four Ps. Again, in the sermon we talked about a few weeks ago. One's person. Your very self, we're called to sacrifice for God. All of who you are. One's possessions. As a gift from God that we're called to give back to Him. Third P, Praises, offering a sacrifice of praises. And finally, and most important for this morning, prayer. Just as one's relationship with God was hindered by how a husband treated his wife then, we have a similar problem now. In the New Testament, 1 Peter 3, 7 says this. This is a New Living Translation. In the same way, you husbands must give honor to your wives. Treat her with understanding as you live together. She may be weaker than you are, and that means sort of weaker in the physical sense than you are, but she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. If you don't treat her as you should, your prayers will not be heard. In other words, prayers can be rejected because the connection between a person and God gets fuzzy. That connection gets fuzzy. When we continually fail to honor 
and treat our spouse as we're called to do. Not only affects marriage, it affects your relationship with God. Now, I want to do a little uh, cleaning out of the cobwebs here. Because there's some difficult issues here in these verses. I just want to go through them real quickly. Verses 15 through 16 have all kinds of like textual variances, grammatical confusion going on, which give you lots of different translations, which you may have noticed in your Bible. For instance, verse 15, you got this idea of godly offspring. What is that? Is it real children? Is it talking about offspring in terms of being children of God? Verse 16, this idea of the garment of violence. Is it referring to domestic abuse? Or is it referring to the damage on faithfulness, which is compounded by divorce? An important aside, have you ever heard people use, I hate divorce, when talking to someone who's in the midst of divorce? A lot of times this happens where someone will quote Malachi here saying, don't you know that God hates divorce? If you haven't heard that before, you can ignore this next statement. But I actually think the translation we have here is correct. That it is the man who does not love his wife, okay, and so divorces her, and then covers his garment with violence. Otherwise, grammatically, it has to be God who not only hates divorce, but God, in the second part of the sentence, still the subject, has to be the one covering his garment with violence. And that is not God. So even if it is to be translated here, God saying, I hate divorce. Let me just say this. Who doesn't? Does anyone like divorce? I remember um, this woman once telling me when she was going through a divorce uh, that involved some infidelity. Someone in her church, it's so sad, someone in her church came up to her and said, you know, God says in Malachi, I hate divorce. So the divorcee just smiled and said, man, that's a relief. I hate it too, but I didn't know I was in such good company. Now look, these are all hard topics present here. We got the issue of the permissibility of divorce. We could talk about marriage and the gift of singleness for some. Godly offspring, what does that mean? I can't frankly cover all that this morning. So we're just going to focus on the heart of the passage, which is this. Guard yourself in spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Malachi mentions this basically three times. And first of all, I should say this, spirit. Basically, spirit is the part of each person that possesses this capacity to relate to God. Everyone has it. The capacity to relate to God, that's called a little s spirit. And the big s spirit connects with it. Okay? Now, there's no like firm definition of this in the Bible, but from all the biblical data we have, 1 Corinthians 2, other places, this is kind of the idea of the little s spirit. You can think of it like an electrical outlet. You know, many of us have stuck various items into an electrical outlet, right? <laughs> Whether it was in childhood or at a fraternity party. All right, we just did this. <laughs> All right, but only one thing creates a connection, right? And that is the Holy Spirit. That is God. So we had this capacity to relate to God, but we try to stick other things and fill that void with other things and make that connection. Okay, so Malachi here leaves off guard yourself in spirit in verse 14. And in verse 16, he omits to the wife of your youth. But the repetition is obvious. He mentions the Hebrew word banad, which is to break faith or to be faithless. He mentions it three times in these four verses. So that's the whole heart of what's going on here. Guard your spirit. 
Let yourself not be faithless to the wife of your youth. What does it mean then to be faithless? Again, clearing some cobwebs out here, making some sense of this passage. It's to fail to live up to my end of the covenant to the point where it breaks my marriage. So the practical question for us this morning, for those of us who are married, how can you begin? How can you begin to better guard your spirits now so as to remain faithful to your spouse? And for those of us not married, how can you guard your spirits now for faithfulness in marriage later? I'm going to come back to that in a little bit. So, giving you this definition, this idea of faithlessness, I want to try to move forward with some picture of biblical marital faithfulness. Alright, so let's start with a picture of faithfulness this morning. Now, ladies... Oh, marriage sermons are fun. Okay, ladies, I, in some ways I just feel bad for you. Uh, with, with, with all the filth and movies, right? Uh, uh, excessive, superfluous violence that many of us men like to watch. You've always corrected us well. And you've always had the romantic chick flicks to fall back on. Because, of course, if God loves one thing, it's love. Now, chick flicks, there are many to choose from. There, there are many favorites to choose from over this past decade. Uh, I've interviewed 100 women. For, I did not. But I kind of just got a sense in my own experience relating with women. Uh, many to choose from. Uh, for instance, Pride and Prejudice. The new version of Pride and Prejudice. Pride and Prejudice, you can never go wrong. Who can forget 27 dresses? All right, what, what a story. A woman goes through 27 weddings. It's a bridesmaid, etc. Finally, she gets married. Beautiful. And now, last year, I was compelled... I was compelled to watch, he's just not that into you. I don't know what to say about that. But I, I, no flick, no flick has toyed with the hearts of women. No flick has outchicked the notebook. Yeah, yes. <laughs> Laughter from women, groaning from men. <laughs> you remember paying those $10 to see that, right, men? Or 20 with your wife. Now... Why do I feel bad about bringing this up? Because I'm going to explain to you this morning why a different movie, Seabiscuit, which stars a horse, is actually a much better chick flick and a better picture of true romantic love than The Notebook. That's right, I'm going to break some hearts this morning. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's going to be hard. Here's the situation with The Notebook. I'll just give you a quick rundown. A woman makes a promise to marry one guy. All right, she's already engaged. Until she finds out that her old love is still out there. All right, and still loves her. All right, so we're going to show a clip. I'm going to give you a clip of the notebook's picture of romantic love. Let's watch it. Are we back there? What about the past couple of days? They happen, you know? I know that they happen, and they were wonderful. But they were also very irresponsible. Beyonce waiting for me at a hotel who's going to be crushed when he so finds out So you make what love to me, and then you go back to your husband? Is that your plan? Was that a test that no, I didn't pass? I made a promise to a man. He gave me a ring, and I gave him my word. And you, this is not about keeping your promise, and it's not about following your heart. It's about security. What is that supposed to mean? Money! What are you talking... He's got a lot of money. Thinking about what everyone wants. Stop thinking about what I want. What he wants, what your parents want. What do you want? What do you want? 
It's not that simple. What it's do you want? Okay. Now, there's some good stuff in this movie. I want to just make that real clear. But the tenor of the movie is that love is not about promises. All right? You've got to go with your heart. Ultimately, you have to go, you should go with what you want. The old flame says it's not about keeping a promise. And he also says it's not about following your heart. But he really means that, doesn't he? Because later he says, what do you want? I.e., follow your heart. Now, Seabiscuit. Uh, this is a movie about a racehorse that people gave up on. All right? It's a, an owner who's scarred by tragedy. You know, he's sort of an underdog. You've got a trainer who's too old to win. You have a jockey who's experienced nothing but failure. It's a true underdog story. They come together to defeat gigantic horses and things like that. Now, <laughs> sounds frightening. It's not a horror movie. But I bring it up in this because there's a character in this movie who's a great candidate for a spouse. That it isn't the main jockey played by Tobey Maguire. It's not even Jeff Bridges or any of the other main characters. Rather, I know him only as the other jockey. In fact, I looked up his name and information on uh, IMDB, International Movie Database, and it wasn't even there. That's how much uh, they think about him in this movie, okay? But I think he's the hero of the story. I saw this movie in December of 2003, and I actually wrote about it in my journal. So I'm going to share with you some thoughts from my journal. I know that's what you came to hear. Uh, all right. So I was on my way out of Chicago, uh, from Chicago to San Diego. Katie and I were on a plane. And I said, ironically, the most impressionable character to me was a true man of humility who was overshadowed by the underdog jockey. In fact, I don't even remember this jockey's name, but he was friends with the red-haired jockey. And this friend jockey was a man who did whatever it took to encourage and help his friend. He consistently put what was best for his friend above what was best for him. First of all, I'll give you a couple examples. He was willing to ride Seabiscuit, the horse, and give all the attention to his friend when the red-haired jockey named Red broke his leg. He was unable to race against the great man of war, this, this great horse. And so the original jockey was lying in bed and listening to this victorious race. And all the jockey heard his friend say was, I wish Red could have been here to ride him. And that was all the encouragement that young man needed. Later, the owner of the horse was very worried about the, the original jockey, the red-haired jockey, getting back on Seabiscuit and riding him for fear that it might cripple him because his leg was so damaged. He sought the advice of his friend jockey who had been riding Seabiscuit victoriously in his stead. How easy it would have been for him to say that, you know, look, you probably shouldn't ride it. I've been doing pretty well. Let's do what's best for the team and what's best for me. After all, he had ridden this horse to much success. But instead he said, it's better to break a man's leg than his heart. Let him ride. The fun, sorry, I know, that was cheesy. All right. The final act, but, but you know, it's profound. The final act uh, of counting him, others more significant than himself was the most inspiring act of all. The red-haired jockey is back on Seabiscuit for a last race. And it's the last race of the horse, too. It's the Santa Anita, Santa Anita Derby. It's a big race. His friend jockey was back on a different horse. And, uh, and Seabiscuit started way behind. He was going to lose. But the friend jockey, the faithful friend, knew something about Seabiscuit. The way he, he, he sped ahead, he had that extra gear and went fast, was the horse had to look another horse in the eye. And that sort of lit the fire of his competitive spirit. 
So watch what the friend does. Right, with Seabiscuit way behind, watch what the faithful friend does. He is jockey number seven in this clip. Well, he won the race. <laughs> I know, I know. It's, uh, sorry. <laughs> Can you not tell from the music? I mean, come on. Well, look. What did we learn last week about the covenant? We learned that it's more than a contract, but more than a love song. And that's what we'd see demonstrated here. It's more than a contract. This guy cares about his friend. His jockey friend, to the point where he gives him credit. He wants him to ride the horse. It's, it's more than signing on a dotted line. This person cares about his friend. But it's more than a love song. It's more than saying, hey, way to go. He actually sacrifices of himself, as we see in that final race. He falls back intentionally, gets in last place, so his friend could succeed. The key phrase, if you remember, of the covenant we talked about last week, that God makes with his people, he says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. In other words, he gives of himself. When he says, I will be their God, he is giving of himself to his people. God is giving of himself to his people. So, it's not a coincidence we find here in Malachi, but look at verse 15, chapter 2. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? In other words, God shows his covenant in marriage. He gives of himself to the union of marriage, a portion of his spirit, he blesses upon marriage. This is not a coincidence. He's saying, my covenant love is in marriage. He's saying, marriage is meant to be a picture of what my covenant faithful love is supposed to look like. So, the other jockey in a movie about a horse is what Hollywood can cut, you know, conjure up as a picture of faithfulness. How do we then guard our spirits from faithlessness, on the one hand, but also feed faithfulness and marriage on the other hand? So how do we kind of protect ourselves on the one hand, but positively feed faithfulness in our marriage on the other? And my prayer this morning is that one of these things I'm going to talk about will really hit home for each of us, okay? First of all, guard your spirit. Guard that part of you that's supposed to connect with God. Guard it from, first, worldly influence. Worldly influence. There are two extremes toward which the world and Satan's influence in it pull us. They're constantly pulling us to two extremes. One is romantic idealism. Right, we kind of saw that notebook. The second is the temporary nature of marriage. On the one end, the lofty romantic idealism. On the other end, the bottom. 
the failure of marriage, the temporary nature of marriage. We understand the latter being a problem, right? You've heard of the seven-year itch, most likely in marriage. That applies largely, though, to couples in their 40s and 50s. Research shows that the critical year for couples now in their 20s and 30s is year three. Year three. It's moved up. The perception is a lifelong monogamous relationship is unrealistic, untenable. And you know, we shake our heads at that, like, oh man, yeah. But we're not exempt. None of us are exempt, as if we're married, from the temptation, from these influences. Of course, we know about romantic idealism. Love, according to chick flicks, solely based on passion and high ideals, does not work. No one can live up to them. And ultimately, they break our hearts. Those ideals and the other person. I uh, I did some research on this, and uh, I was watching Access Hollywood this week. Not really. But I I, I don't know how I found this, but the lead actor and actress of The Notebook themselves got caught up in it. And that romantic idealism and and the heat of the moment, they became a couple, these two people. But of course, when the movie buzz died down, what happened? They broke up. Because such romantic idealism doesn't last. A person cannot meet the expectations of a movie role. Even for Brian Gosling and Rachel McAdams. So what do we do? What do we do? We make compromises. We make compromises. We have marriages based on compromises. That should work, right? Wrong. But here's where the grand tragedy is really revealed. Because Satan is not just winning when it comes to faithlessness in marriage. He has us playing the wrong game. He's not just winning, he has us playing the wrong game. And it's like showing up to a tennis court with a 9-iron and a titleist. Right? It's not going to do you much good. Or, or showing up to the soccer pitch with a cricket bat. All right? You might hurt some people. <laughs> right? But other than that, it's not doing you any good. We're mistaking the field of battle, so we use the wrong weapons. We use specifically this weapon of compromise. We make compromises because we want to keep the marriage going. Somewhere between romantic idealism and it not being temporary, right, and failing. Somewhere between those two extremes, so we compromise. But what happens with compromise? If you base your marriage on it, bitterness brews under the surface. We, we have these thoughts like, I gave up too much. Or, I'm, man, I'm really sacrificing for her. Where's my respect? When meanwhile, the other person's saying the same thing. But we've compromised. Isn't that how it works? Yeah, it would work if we didn't have sin in us. (laughs) Now, I'm not saying that some decisions won't lead to compromise, but it will ultimately damage our marriage if that's the motivating force. I I want to read to you Ephesians 5, 24 and 25. And I want you to tell me if you hear compromise as the key action in marriage, all right? Ephesians 4, or Ephesians 5, 24. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their husbands. Submit in everything to their husbands. All right, in everything. All right, let's go to the next one. A husband's love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Remember, Jesus died for the church. Gave completely of himself. Died for every part of his will and inclination for the church. So, does that sound like compromise language? No. That's pretty extreme language. Submit in everything. Die to self. Die. 
right? Sacrifice. If you sacrifice or submit to your max and it ends up being in the middle, others may call it compromise. But let's not do that. Let's not do that. We know it's sacrifice. It's compelled by the sacrifice of Christ. Our battle, friends, is on a field whose two goals are self-centeredness and Jesus. And our weapon is sacrifice. Self-denial. Looking to Jesus and his sacrifice, responding to it with sacrifice. That's our field. That's our goal. And that's our weapon. Also, guard your spirits. Number two, guard your spirits from your spouse. That sounds kind of strange, right? Is this really helping to build our marriage? We share everything. I don't want to guard my spirit from my spouse. Because the spirit only connects with one thing. And that's the spirit. That is God himself. In other words, you cannot ask your spouse to give you what only God can give. The goal in marriage then becomes being used by God to subjectively help your spouse experience a taste of what only God can objectively give. Let me explain what I mean by that. There's a term in American football, American football called piling on. It's when a defender tackles a man with the ball and thus causes him to be down and the play stops. All right, so he tackles him, but then the other defenders come and they pile on. He's already down, but then they come and jump on the same guy over and over. And there's a cute picture of kids doing it. You know, I love that. But they do over and over to have him taste the fact that he's really down. To get a further experience of the fact that he's now he's down already, but they're just really rubbing it in. A positive way to look at that is what we do in marriage, our goal in marriage, is to positively give your spouse a taste of the love, of the sacrifice, of the sense of identity that only Jesus can give. And you just pile on. You're you're just there to pile on and further that sense of what only Jesus can give. Does that make sense? So, ladies, let me address you for a minute. You have certain expectations in marriage. I'm, I'm generalizing to some extent. You can... Rebuke me afterwards. All right. Marriage <laughs> Marriage will fulfill your desire to, to always be loved and always be accepted for who you are. That's an expectation we often bring into marriage and carry with us throughout. A second expectation, marriage will fulfill your desire for total security. Now, should your husband model these things as Christ does? Yes. Is your husband a tool? <laughs> Is your husband a tool? <laughs> You can answer that question on your own. I don't need anything. I don't need to ask that. <laughs> oh, boy. All right, so is your husband a tool through which God can give you a taste of his acceptance and his love? Of course. <laughs> but here's the message. And here's where the tool comes in. He will fail. He will fail. And here's the question for you. Will his failure cause you to fail? Only if your love and acceptance and security remains in Christ will you succeed at guarding your spirit enough that you can still love your spouse. Because your spirit is meant to connect with his spirit. Men, we have the expectation that marriage will fulfill your inner cravings. Uh, you know, you know what I mean, all right? Uh, you, and, and the idea that you'll no longer lust once you hear I do. 
Right, that, that battle's over. I'm getting married. Men, have this expectation that marriage will fulfill your desire for respect. Right? That at least at the end of the day, when I go home at the end of my work day, at least one person will respect me. Men, you know you want that. We, we think of ourselves as strong, but you, one person will respect me. Now listen, should our wives help fulfill our inner cravings? Yes, according to 1 Corinthians 7, 5. Write that down, wives. Sorry, that's terrible. But should, should she, and should she respect you to the extent that she even submits to you? Uh, yes, but she will fail. Just as a husband will fail to sacrifice every way. The question comes, men, will you bail when she falls short? Will you emotionally check out when she is unable to do this? You won't only to the extent that your greatest desire remains in Jesus. And your significance comes from being the Father's Son. Okay, last part here, last section. I'm going to make it quick. Feed your spirit. Feed your spirit with faithfulness for faithfulness. How do you be, be faithful? How do you remain faithful to your spouse and all you're called to do? And I'm not just talking about being faithful to the point where we don't get a divorce. I mean faithful in the way God has called us. How do you do it? By feeding your spirit with faithfulness. Build faithful habits in your life. Number one faithful habit I'm going to suggest this morning. Daily rush to God's word. Listen, when Katie and I are having a conflict, we need a third party. Something outside of ourselves that we can look to for help. Everyone needs it. And it can't just be having... Just anything in common. All right? You can't say, you know, well, let's just do something we both enjoy. We both love movies. Or uh, let's go kite surfing. We love that. We have in common. Look, kite surfing isn't going to help you know how to spend your money. Or know where to send your kids to school. Or how to work out lovingly but truthfully communicate. It can't just be anything in common. Any third party. But neither can you say... We just always need, you know, we just always need to be honest about everything we're thinking and feeling. Have you ever said that before? Let's just always be honest with you about everything we're thinking and feeling. Oh my gosh, that's a disaster. That is an absolute disaster, and, and God's Word never says that. Uh, look, when either of us are annoyed or troubled by the other, it's easy to point out these things and nag each other about them, right? But what, what happens? We exasperate each other. If you point out everything... You exasperate the other person, beat them down to the point where they don't even want to work on the marriage anymore. We all need an objective third party we can go to, not the mother-in-law on the telephone. That's not what I'm talking about when I talk about third party. But if I'm confident she is daily reading God's Word and, and vice versa, then we don't have to bring every little thing up. Why? Because God's Word will bring conviction and the other when needed. And patience in me when needed. You know what I mean? And you know, sometimes it happens at the same time, doesn't it? Isn't that glorious? When you don't know it, but God is teaching you patience, long-suffering. But all the while in your spouse, is, you know, convicting them of the very thing you're struggling with. Oh man, it's happened so many times. God's Word is that third party that we need. It's objective. It's here. It's written and it's sharper than any double-edged sword. It divides between bone and marrow. It says it judges the thoughts and intentions of men and women. In other words, spouse, when you're scared, oh man, but if I don't bring it up, you know, no one's going to protect me. Who's going to take care of me? 
How am I going to fight for myself? God's word will fight for you. But it will also teach you. I need to make a necessary diversion. I made a covenant with myself before the sermon that I wouldn't alienate singles here this morning. The habits of faithfulness apply to each person who's married or someday interested in being so. All right? I've been in your shoes before. Uh, you know, you have a certain lifestyle you lead, certain feelings you feel, uh, certain habits you believe that will change and be transformed, right, when you put on that tux or that white dress. That's a lie. The, the habits you build today are the habits you will drag in to your marriage. Right, they don't just magically disappear with the pastor's benediction, right? And you carrying your life across the threshold. So I want to encourage you, guard your spirit now for faithfulness in marriage later by building habits of faithfulness in those now relationships. And carry those in. For instance, here's number two habit you can build for, to build a faithfulness in your life. Build the habit of honor. I know many of you men, and if there's one thing you're good at, men, it's being competitive. All right? Use that to your advantage. There's one place in Scripture where we're encouraged to be competitive. Romans 12.10 says this, to outdo, outdo one another in showing honor. All right. Let's do this thing. Let's rack up the points. By the way, men, I know I'm might sound like I'm picking on you this morning, but if you look here in Malachi and in Peter, we looked at earlier, who's being addressed? Men. The leaders of your family, you're called to step up at this first, but that's another story. Not really. Listen to that. All right. I remember marriage, marriage guru Gary Smalley once saying this. You honor what you value. You honor what you value. So years ago, I decided to write down one thing I valued about Katie every day for two months. All right? And uh, here it is. Not just kidding, it's one page. But still, here it is right here. Should have been longer, but I'm working on it. Working on it. Do you think writing down something I valued about my spouse, you think that led to some encouraging words in our marriage? Do you think a propensity to want to do something out of the ordinary or do something ordinary for her grew? Absolutely. Absolutely. Men and women both. I'll encourage both of you. From now till Easter, here's a challenge for you. Make a list. Every day, from now till Easter, what you value in your wife. Women, write, write a list. What you value in your husband. One thing a day. Just notice how God will begin to use it to change your attitude. Pray that he would. I bet you he will. I bet you will. And if you're not married... Pick four friends between now and Easter. And spend a week on each just saying, here's what I value about this friendship. I'm telling you, if you begin to do that in your friendships, man, you're going to be a successful spouse. God is going to use you to subjectively help your wife or your husband experience the love of Christ. I'm going to skip my last point because of time. Let me just say this. The marriage covenant. It's really kind of one-sided, isn't it? Or it feels one-sided. There's no guarantee that another person will guard their spirit, is there? There's no guarantee in the covenant that the other person will build habits of faithfulness for faithfulness. It's all a faith risk. But it was the same risk that God took on us through the free gift of His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, this morning...
You call us to guard our relationships with you, our spirits, so that we can be faithful to our spouses. Lord, we try to use things to fill us up when we really need Christ. We even try to use our spouse to make us feel things about ourselves that only you, Jesus, did objectively and also made us feel. Father, help us remember that in relating in marriage. And Father, help us build habits, habits like rushing to your word every day to encourage one another in reading the word so that every little thing doesn't have to be brought up in marriage and exasperate our spouse. Help us also, Lord, honor our spouses, not just in good intentions, but really developing an attitude of honoring in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.